Hi, thank you so much. It's so great to be here. And as John mentioned, my first book, which was actually started out as my dissertation, was on the Civil War and Reconstruction in Washington, D.C. And so there are so many of you here and people at my table who just exude. And uh, I have lifelong interest in the history of this period in Washington, which of course also encompasses the history of Abraham Lincoln. And so I feel like I'm among friends here and among people who share very much my interests. So first, let me thank John Willen for inviting me to come here and for helping me figure out the logistics of being here. I also want to thank the Lincoln Roundtable Group, the Lincoln Group and the Civil War Roundtable in your combined meeting. And just thank you for the wonderful conversations that we've already had tonight. So I'm going to be talking about this book, uh, originally published in 1942, called They Knew Lincoln, um, with the new edition that came out with an introduction that I wrote, came out about exactly one year ago. And I'll say um, the substance of my talk tonight is about this book and the author, John Washington. And I'm especially happy to talk about it, of course, on Lincoln's birthday, but also during Black History Month, because this book is really exemplifies the tradition, a certain kind of tradition in the writing of black history. And it's all about black people. It's written by an African-American author. And it's also about the difference it makes when you understand American history and people and questions that you thought you knew about from a different perspective, that is, from the perspective of African-American history. So we don't usually think about conventional histories of Lincoln or the Civil War as white history, but in, a lot of, in fact, a lot of times that's what it is. It's the history told from the perspective of perhaps the most powerful people, those were white people in that era, perhaps the conventional narrative of Civil War battles or of presidents and the cabinet and Congress, and all of that is history, but it's also in a certain sense white history. And so John Washington and this book represent a different tradition in history writing, which at its best tells us the story not just of African-American people, but also changes the way that we think about all of American history. It changes our perspective when we bring this history into conversation with mainstream kind of narratives of history. So the first time I saw They Knew Lincoln, I was a graduate student at University of Michigan, and somehow I saw a citation to this book, and I went to the university library and I checked it out. And I think the copy that I had at that time was it was a very generic looking university library kind of book. It was just a blue book, nondescript, cloth binding. I had a hard time making sense of this book when I started to delve into it. So the author was John E. Washington, somebody I had never heard of before. Some of the most obvious highlights in this book when I first glanced at it, it has two chapters in it on Elizabeth Keckley. As many of you probably know, Elizabeth Keckley was a skilled seamstress to Mary Lincoln. She also sewed dresses to Verena Davis before Jefferson Davis and Verena Davis left Washington. She owned her own dress shop in Washington, D.C., and she designed really high fashion dresses. She was born in slavery in Virginia, and she moved to St. Louis and purchased her own freedom and the freedom of her son. Then she moved to Washington. She became a famous dressmaker. And after Lincoln's assassination, Keckley became a trusted friend of Mary Lincoln, and she also published a book that told the story of her life, including her life in the Lincoln White House. Um, and that book is called Behind the Scenes. So John Washington and They Knew Lincoln researched many aspects of Keckley's story, including things that really a lot of people didn't know about, which is what happened to her after her book Behind the Scenes came out in 1868, when she was shunned by the Lincolns. She never spoke to Mary Lincoln again after that. And later, she taught at Wilberforce University before she returned to Washington, D.C. in her old age. Another person featured in the book is William de Florville, Lincoln's Haitian-born barber in Springfield, Illinois. Florville was actually very well known in Lincoln's era in Springfield. His barbershop was said to be a meeting place for political people in town, so they'd come into the barbershop and they'd get shaved or get their hair cut and they would be talking politics in the Illinois capital. And he was very prosperous. He owned property both in Springfield and Bloomington, Illinois. And Lincoln was his property attorney. So he and Lincoln had a kind of business relationship, but they were also friends. And Florville was very interesting. He was a musician. He often played music at public events. He published poetry in the local newspaper. And he regularly gave money both to the Catholic Church in Springfield and to a Protestant congregation as well. In addition to portraits of these two and other relatively prominent African-Americans, 
They Knew Lincoln also included stories of Washington's own childhood, growing up near Ford's Theater in Washington, D.C., hearing elderly people who had lived during the Civil War talk about their experiences with intersecting with the Lincolns, working in the Lincoln White House, meeting the Lincolns in travels through the capital city. This part of the book included meditations on what it was like to do domestic work for wealthy people in Washington, what it was like to work as a cook in the White House, stories of people who escaped from slavery and migrated into Washington, D.C., and also stories of ghosts that haunted Ford's Theater. So I found this to be a really intriguing book, but it was also very unusual. Many of the stories that it contained were not sourced according to stringent PhD student standards, especially the stories of ghosts. The author included, John Washington included facsimile documents in an appendix of some of the documents that he had found associated with the stories. But in many cases, these were oral histories. They were accounts um, that, of stories people told that really couldn't be backed up with other kinds of documents. It also wasn't like a straightforward narrative history. It was more a pastiche of vignettes, mostly about African-Americans' encounters with Lincolns. And more broadly, I think, it's a book that makes the case for the importance of black history to American history and about the dignity of the lives of everyday people. So at that time in grad school, I didn't really know how to use this book in my dissertation research, but I became really curious about the book itself, the author, how did it come into existence? Who was the person who thought to write it and how come I didn't know anything about him? And back then, believe it or not, there wasn't the internet wasn't as deep and sophisticated as it is now, if you could call it sophisticated. So I couldn't really find out anything, actually, about John Washington or the book. I returned the book to the library, but this book kind of percolated in the back of my head, and as I worked on other projects, I kept thinking about it, and I kept doing research on it. So I chipped away at this project for many years, asking around about John E. Washington and the book and doing research both in Illinois and in Washington, D.C. And between one thing and another, I found out a lot about him and the book. So he was born, John E. Washington was born in Annapolis, Maryland in 1880. His parents, who had been enslaved until the Civil War, had passed away. And he was raised primarily by his grandmother in Washington, D.C. He developed an interest in Lincoln and the Civil War period during his boyhood, when he lived around the corner from Ford's Theater. His grandmother ran a boarding house there, and she often hosted her friends in the house, in the basement of the boarding house. And later, as I'll talk about, he worked as a teacher at Cardozo High School, which was at that time a segregated public high school, a black-only public high school in Washington, D.C. But he didn't start writing about or thinking that he could even write about Abraham Lincoln or people uh, associated with him until a public controversy in 1935. So back to Keckley. So in 1935, there was a Washington journalist named Bess Furman who spent a lot of time covering the Roosevelt administration. She was doing a side project on the history of women journalists in Washington, D.C. And she interviewed a Democratic operative named David Rankin Barbie about a woman named Jane Gray Swisshelm. She was known as one of the first women journalists ever to cover Congress. She was a white woman from Minnesota, and she covered Congress during the Civil War and after. So here's Bess Furman interviewing this guy, David Rankin Barbie, about Jane Swisshelm. And during the interview, Barbie asserted that among Jane Swisshelm's many accomplishments, she was also the author of the memoir Behind the Scenes, said to be authored by Elizabeth Keckley. So Barbie said, there never was a person named Elizabeth Keckley, a former slave, a skilled dressmaker to the most prominent white women in Washington and a confidant of Mary Lincoln. He said, no such person existed. He falsely claimed that Mary Lincoln bought her dresses in New York and Paris and had no need of a personal dressmaker. And he also, in a letter to a friend, he said a properly raised Southern white woman like Mary Todd, he insisted, quote, was not the type of woman who would gossip before servants. No well-bred Southern woman would do that. 
So he basically said, no such person as Elizabeth Keckley existed, Mary Lincoln would never have confided in a black woman, and so forth. Now, Bess Furman put this report in the newspaper. She reported on this as a kind of revelation, and you can see the headline, sensationalized book of Lincoln's time attributed to Sob Sister, that's a reference to Jane Swissom. She quoted Barbie as saying, Barbie said his researches had convinced him there was no such person at all as Elizabeth Keckley. Jane Swisshelm, in her utter devotion to the anti-slavery cause, invented an ex-slave who made Mrs. Lincoln's dresses. Jane herself had been a dressmaker. And Jane Swisshelm ostensibly wrote behind the scenes, which was actually Keckley's book. This story by Bess Furman ran in the Washington Star, but it also ran in a whole lot of other papers because it ran out on the AP wires. Furman was totally unprepared for the backlash. As it turned out, African Americans all over Washington, D.C. knew Elizabeth Keckley. Elizabeth Keckley lived until, I think, 1908. Now the, the, the exact date is it, but I think she lived into the 20th century. And this is 1935 we're talking about. And now they came forward. They called Bess Furman. They wrote to her. And probably the most outspoken person was a high school teacher named John Washington, who wrote a letter to the editor of the Evening Star, which got published, saying, look, Elizabeth Keckley existed. This woman was amazing. She was a highly skilled seamstress. She was a member of 15th Street Presbyterian Church. And so he was out there making the case that this account by Barbie was absolutely incorrect. Bess Furman, having a certain amount of integrity as a reporter, started re-reporting the story. She went to Washington's house. She went to the home of Frank Grimke, the pastor at 15th Street Presbyterian Church. And she went to a bunch of other, visited a bunch of other African Americans in Washington who had known Keckley. She wrote a follow-up story in which she reported being shown family photo albums containing pictures of Keckley and meeting people who had known her personally. In her diary, she had a professional kind of day book diary type of thing that it's now in the Library of Congress. She acknowledged that she wrote a correction, right? So she wrote a second story. This is a correction. Oops, uh, I guess Elizabeth Keckley really did exist. This whole experience motivated John Washington to set the record straight. He came to understand that Keckley's story was in danger of being forgotten or lost and even that if people didn't make an effort to collect these stories and save them, that somebody like Elizabeth Keckley could be completely forgotten, or her story just written over, or even a white person getting credit for what Keckley had actually done. So he started doing more research on Elizabeth Keckley's life, hoping to document the whole of her life, and also wanting to follow up on the question of who, if anyone, helped her write that book or helped get it into print. Over time, he expanded his research into a book which, on what he called the colored side of Lincolniana. So this was the origin of the book that he produced. Now, Washington was about as well prepared to do this work as any African-American person of his generation. In the 1930s, this was when history doctoral programs finally began to open their doors to African-American students. But until that time, there were hardly any black PhDs in history. Most practitioners of African-American history didn't have professional training in history or advanced degrees because they simply were not permitted to enter most doctoral programs. But Washington had a really fantastic education. He had attended Washington, D.C.'s most elite public school for African-American students at the time, which was called M Street School back in the 19th century, later known as Dunbar High School. From there, he went, to earn, went on to earn three degrees at Howard University. So he got a degree in teaching, then he got a degree in dentistry, and then the last degree that he got was a bachelor's degree in liberal arts. So you could actually get a degree in dentistry before getting a bachelor's in liberal arts, because that's just how things worked back then. Because a dentistry degree is a professional degree, right? You just get dentistry training. You don't necessarily need your bachelor's. So, by the, so he has three degrees from Howard. And by the 1930s, he was solidly middle class. He owned a home on Florida Avenue in LaDroit Park, which was actually where a lot of black professionals lived. And he also had a vacation home 
in a community called Highland Beach, Maryland, which was founded at the end of the 19th century by Frederick Douglass's son, Charles Douglass. In uh, Johnny Washington's time, it was directed by Frederick Douglass's grandson, Haley Douglass. So the origins of this town are really interesting. Basically, beachfront vacation communities in Maryland were white only. African Americans wouldn't have been allowed to buy into communities like that. And so Frederick Douglass's son, Charles Douglass, with some other investors, bought a whole bunch of land, subdivided it, got investors to buy properties and build houses in that community. And it became a very elite African American vacation community. So all this time, um, Washington was working at, as an art teacher, a commercial art teacher at Cardozo High School, which was considered the second most elite black public high school in the city next to Dunbar. People said that Cardozo was the first high school in the country that was a business-oriented high school for black students. So it was oriented toward students learning kind of skills and stuff uh, related to business and then going on into careers related to business. Washington's interest in art dated to his boyhood, and if you look at the book, you'll see that there are a couple of illustrations in there that were paintings he made. One of the stories he tells in the book is that when he was a kid, he always heard these stories about the Lincoln assassination. He lived right near Ford's Theater, and John Wilkes Booth kind of haunted his dreams. And so one time as a child, he painted a picture of Booth and then destroyed it on purpose to kind of exercise the demon of John Wilkes Booth. And there's a picture kind of illustrating that in the book. So he was a teacher at Cardozo High School. He was an amateur artist. He also put his dentistry degree to use. He was active in a nationwide association of black dentists. And he also practiced dentistry on the side, probably out of his home, so uh, in addition to being a teacher. So he was a multi-talented man with an elite education and very broad interests. And now in 1935 and onward, he decided to devote his intention to the history of African Americans and Lincoln. And this, I have to underscore, was really innovative. No previous book on that topic, African Americans and Lincoln, had ever been written before. And the world of Lincoln's scholarship and Lincoln fandom was largely a white world. No white Lincoln scholar had ever thought to write such a book. And it was challenging to try to research and write a book like that because you had to deal with, well, what are the sources? How do you find out the history of everyday people, many of whom might not have been able to read and write or might, their papers might have been destroyed or lost? So how do you actually do that kind of research? So Washington was well-placed, as, as you all probably can uh, appreciate. He was well-placed to do historical research because he lived in Washington, DC. And he did a lot of research at the Library of Congress. But to expand his base of sources, he reached out to the world of Lincoln collectors and Lincoln fans. Now, to give you a little bit of context for this, as you might know already, Lincoln-related clubs and organizations existed all across the country, particularly in the Midwest and the East. And these kind of organizations like Lincoln Roundtables, right, like Lincoln groups, Lincoln associations, had really started to proliferate around the 100th anniversary of Lincoln's birth. So 1909 is when historians have shown there's this kind of proliferation of these kind of groups. People who were interested in Lincoln, who liked to collect Lincoln-related stuff, liked to collect autographs, liked to collect letters. And in the progressive era and the New Deal era, as now, many Americans admired Lincoln enormously. And Lincoln fans would gather at local roundtable organizations and also in broader national organizations. And two of the most important were the Lincoln National Life Foundation, which was based in Fort Wayne, Indiana, and the Abraham Lincoln Association, which was based in Springfield, Illinois. So these were kind of national organizations that helped facilitate these kind of more local Lincoln roundtables. Or not facilitate, but kind of were another aspect of that world of Lincoln collecting and Lincoln scholarship. That world was, again, almost entirely white. Many white Americans at that time did admire Lincoln as the great emancipator. So obviously, there are many reasons to think that Lincoln was a great president. And, and it's not that, I mean, people at the time did think of Lincoln as the great emancipator. But they really didn't think very much about how African Americans themselves might have influenced Lincoln or about the everyday African American people that Lincoln might have encountered. The orientation toward white people and the lack of consideration for black people went way back in this world, as I'm going to talk about in a sec. But Washington dove in anyway. And what he did was he started out by contacting these two men, Harry Pratt and Lewis Warren. 
both of them were pretty omnivorously interested in things related to Lincoln. So they were interested in just about any, everything related to Lincoln, even if they didn't have a particular interest in his relationship with African Americans. They helped Washington out by going through their vertical files and kind of trying to see if they had any material on things Washington was interested in. But even their sources were very limited. And I want to say something particular about William Herndon in this context. As many of you no doubt know, William Herndon was Lincoln's law partner in Springfield and his most avid early biographer. After Lincoln's death, William Herndon collected stories. He interviewed tons and tons of people, just about anyone who he could find, with some exceptions, who would have known Lincoln, who would have intersected with him. He tried to go around and collect all of these oral histories about Lincoln in his early life, his life in Illinois. And he created, Herndon created an archive that historians have used ever since, have grappled with. How reliable are Herndon's interviews? How reliable are the interviewees? Um, and this has been this really rich body of sources. But Herndon, as far as we know, never interviewed any African-Americans. Even though Lincoln knew plenty of African-Americans, Lincoln knew black people in Springfield, he knew black people in Washington, there's not, as far as I know, and as far as anybody has ever been able to tell me, there's no Herndon interviews with any black people. One person he really could have interviewed, who he definitely knew, was William de Florville. They were contemporaries in Springfield. As I said before, Florville was a very prominent figure in Springfield. But Herndon didn't even interview William de Florville, by the way, who lived till 1868, so he was alive when Herndon was doing his interviews. It's also clear from Herndon's writing about Lincoln that he didn't see African Americans as agents or actors in Lincoln's story. There's a famous story in Herndon's biography of Lincoln, and it's been, it was widely used to explain Lincoln's dislike of slavery. And that story is of Lincoln as a young man going to New Orleans and witnessing a slave auction and being totally disgusted by it. Contemporary scholars have tried to get to the bottom of that vignette and have really cast doubt on the idea that it ever even happened in the first place. Nevertheless, it was often repeated. But in that account, it's Lincoln watching this slave auction, right? So it's like, the black people in the story are not doing anything, they're just they're being victimized. And Lincoln is having this experience where he's realizing that he thinks slavery is awful. But it's not a story of an interaction, right? That's how Herndon evidently saw Lincoln's experience with African Americans and slavery. And the more I kind of came to understand they knew Lincoln, the more I began to think that John Washington was really writing in conversation with or in, in some ways in opposition to Herndon. Because he says in the introduction to the book that his book is premised on a different idea. He writes, Lincoln's views on the injustices of slavery did not all come from his visit to the slave market of New Orleans. They were strengthened by his observation of the colored people who served him. And in that sense, I really think Washington is in conversation with Herndon. He's saying that story about New Orleans is not the be all and end all. Lincoln knew people. He talked to people. They were the ones who influenced him. And in fact, you'll see if you read the book, Washington gives a special place to William de Florville. He describes having heard when he was a boy, a minister, a black minister say to, sort of say to Washington, God put a special black man on this earth to help teach Lincoln to respect black people and to understand that we are entitled to be free. So he says, I remember hearing this when I was a boy. Then later as a man, when he is doing research, he finds out about William de Florville and he decides Florville was that person. He says, you know why? Because Florville was from Haiti. Haiti was the, as you know, Haiti became independent. It abolished slavery before any other place in the Western Hemisphere abolished slavery, became independent from France at the very end of the 18th century, beginning of the 19th century. Florville came to the United States after that. And so Washington's theory was Florville and his example and in the history of Haiti would have shown Lincoln, black people deserve to be free. They can govern themselves. This is an unnatural situation we have in the United States of race-based slavery. So he developed this theory that Florville was that person. And I think it's really, when you think about the two men together, uh, I think it's really interesting that he is putting forward Florville as this kind of 
very, very significant influence on Lincoln. So here's Washington working in the absence of any interviews that Herndon might have done but didn't, working in the absence of a lot of sources. And he reaches out to these guys in the Midwest. Now, Washington was an avid letter writer. He wrote tons of letters, and I think partly that's just what people did back in those days because that's how you would communicate with people who were not in your neighborhood. I've never found his personal papers, which is a real shame. I've looked everywhere. He would have received tons of letters, and he was always writing letters, but I never found a collection of his papers. But what I did find were a lot of his letters to other people in other people's collections. So for instance, in Lewis Warren's papers, there are a lot of letters from Washington. Warren was relatively helpful to John Washington. He helped introduce him to Harry Pratt, who I'll talk about in a second. Warren was the editor of this periodical called Lincoln Lore, a newsletter. And so one of the great things that Lewis Warren did for John Washington was he said, okay, I want you to write a book. I think your book sounds like a great idea. And if and when you publish your book, I will advertise it in my newsletter. And I've got 5,400 people on my mailing list, and I'll advertise it to all of those folks. So Lewis Warren was helpful in that respect, and in fact did advertise the book when it came out. Warren helped Washington get in touch with Harry Pratt from the Abraham Lincoln Association. And Washington wrote a lot of letters to both men, and I'll just quote to you from a couple letters to, that he wrote to Harry Pratt. He liked to share his research finds. He liked to share with them because he knew they were interested in Lincoln. So he liked to sort of say, here's what I found. What do you think of this? In 1939, for example, he wrote to Pratt, quote, I hope to produce a book with the soul of a disappearing people in it. I think we have the material to do so. So far, I've not been able to find a single book on the stories of the neighborhood in which I lived. And Washington also told Pratt why he found Mary Lincoln a sympathetic character. Writing in 1940, I don't know what you think of me, but I really like Mrs. Lincoln because of the vicious attacks upon her and her love for the people of my race. She deserves a better place in history. What do you think? So you can see he had his views on that, and he really uh, he did have a lot of sympathy for Mary Lincoln and also thought she was um, a good person. So Pratt was based in Springfield, and Pratt, in turn, connected Washington with James Randall, who was, at the time, one of the foremost or the foremost academic historian writing about Lincoln. Washington had already met Randall in the Library of Congress, where they were both doing research. So they had kind of met there, and Washington had sent Randall a chapter of his book. But it was Pratt who convinced Randall to help Washington get the book into print. And Randall did some important things, but I want to say a couple of things about how his relationship to the book was complicated. Randall is known for having insisted at the time against people who were saying, oh, the Lincoln theme, it's his famous quote, the, the Lincoln theme is exhausted, right? So, oh, we can't, how could we possibly have more work on Lincoln? They were already saying in the 1930s. And Randall said, no, no, the Lincoln theme is not exhausted, but it's time for professional historians to take over. And Randall had really strong feelings about the difference between professional history, with people with PhDs, and amateurs. And Randall didn't like amateur historians. Um, and he thought that the professionals should take over the study of Lincoln. Washington tried to make the case to Randall that what he was doing was real history, was based in evidence, was scientific in the way that Randall emphasized. In one letter, Washington told Randall that every fact in the book is historically true and that in telling about Lincoln's servants, the book would, quote, serve to supply very valuable missing links in the biographies of Lincoln. But Randall liked the book for different reasons. He insisted that they knew Lincoln was folklore, not history. In one letter, he called Washington's work unhistorical legend. But he said he liked it for such intangible things, this is a quote, as quaintness, flavor, half-articulate race memories, and a quality which some would call unliterary, but which amounts to expressive eloquence. And elsewhere, he compared the book to a Negro spiritual. So Randall, although he became a crucial supporter of the book, 
he really pigeonholed it as not being history, but being folklore, right? So here's Washington is trying to say, I'm getting as much evidence as I can. I'm backing up everything. And Randall's like, yeah, it's a great book, but it's like, it's folklore, it's a spiritual. And he's really putting Washington in a particular box that's distinguishing him from what Randall considered to be real historians. That being said, Randall helped with an endorsement of the book and helped see it through a pretty difficult publication process. So he did provide help in that respect. Everyone involved in this book, including and especially Don Washington himself, understood that what he was trying to do was really difficult. Trying to write a book about Lincoln's relationship with African Americans, with many people who didn't leave behind written records or whose records had been destroyed. Nobody had thought to do oral histories with those people. Thank you, Herndon. And so what Washington was trying to do was hard. And in this context, he was an amazingly enterprising researcher. He conducted interviews of his own. He talked to some very elderly people, like a woman named Mrs. Hannah Brooke, who had been born in 1842 and was still alive in 1939, right? Hannah Brooke recalled staying at the boarding house where Elizabeth Keckley had lived when she was writing her own book. He talked to the children and grandchildren of people who had lived through the 1860s. He drew on his own recollections of his grandmother's friends and their stories. And he was also an intrepid archival researcher. Here in Washington, or over there in Washington, he sought records from the manager of the Treasury Department's personnel files, where he tracked down people who had worked for the Lincolns and then gone on to work for the Treasury Department. And he also tracked down Elizabeth Keckley's Civil War pension in the federal pension records. And that pension had, nobody had found it before, maybe because nobody had looked, but also it was complicated because her son had enlisted in a white regiment before the beginning of the US Colored Troops. He had enlisted in a white regiment and had been killed almost immediately in the war. And so his pension file was not associated with the USCT, but rather with the white regiment where he enlisted. All of the strategies that John Washington used for his research, oral history, archival research, personal recollection, all of these have become part of the stable of resources that historians now use to reconstruct the lives of people who left behind few conventional sources from which to write their histories. So in that sense, I think he was a very innovative historian who was willing to try anything um, and any kind of source to find what he was looking for. And of course, the result of all this was his book, They Knew Lincoln. The book is particularly special for the reasons I've already mentioned. Another special thing about it, his description of African-American White House employees is unparalleled. Those were a group of people who, no, there are no records, there are no archival records of work within the White House for that period. And he was able to piece together some of that story using oral histories and recollections. And that part of the book is widely used by historians who are interested in the domestic lives of the Lincolns in the White House. The book also included photos that had not been publicly seen before, many of them from the personal collections of African-American families. One of them is a scene, at least, and some people in this room may um, quibble with this, but according to Washington, in whose book I believe this photo was first published, he said that this photo came to him from a woman he called Aunt Mary Dines. She recalled that the photo was taken while newly freed people who had just migrated to Washington were waiting to sing for Abraham Lincoln. Her account of what it was like to prepare for the president's visit captured a lot of the urgency of the Civil War in the moment of emancipation. Washington wrote, quote, Aunt Mary said the thought of singing before the president nearly killed her. All the people dressed in their best clothes, some of which were gathered from the battlefield. They called on a man named Uncle Ben, a folk preacher, to provide a prayer, and then everyone stood and sang, My country tis of thee, and President Lincoln took off his hat and sang too. Aunt Mary said she never forgot how her knees shook as she stumbled in front of the people and opened the singing with nobody knows what trouble I see but Jesus. All joined in, and soon she saw Lincoln wiping the tears off his face with his bare hands. And in that passage and throughout the book, Washington really makes the case for Lincoln as a man of great empathy and great humanity, and also for the dignity of the working class men and women who labor in the shadows of people like Lincoln, 
often with great integrity and intelligence themselves. So this is the original book cover of They Knew Lincoln. Washington eventually secured a book contract for his book with the publisher E.P. Dutton in New York with help from a man named Volta Parma, who was the head of the Rare Books Division of the Library of Congress, who acted as his literary agent. The editors really put the manuscript through the ringer, and there's a lot of correspondence about the editing process. But Washington was pleased with the final result. He wrote to Randall that although it had been heavily edited, quote, my words are not changed. Dutton hoped to market the book both to black audiences and to white audiences. And they wanted a prominent person in the Lincoln world to write the book's preface. And so Washington, with help from Randall, got Carl Sandburg to write a very brief preface. And that, again, that was actually then, as it might be now, important for the, from the perspective of selling the book, to have that stamp of approval from Carl Sandburg. The book was highly successful when it was released in winter 1942. Actually, it was released to coincide with Lincoln's birthday in 1942. It was widely reviewed in publications like the New York Times, the Washington Post. It was mostly positively reviewed. And many reviewers recognized the unique contribution that it made to the field of Lincoln studies. It sold out very quickly. But, and here's the catch or the interesting twist, it was never reprinted. It's not clear, and lots of people ask me, well, if it's sold out right away, why was it not reprinted? I don't know the answer. Of course, I tried to find that out. It's possible that they thought the market was saturated. Somebody brought up to me, and I should have thought of this, but I didn't know. There were paper shortages. This is right after the United States entered World War II. There were paper shortages. It's possible that the publishing industry was kind of stalled at this point, and it wouldn't have been reprinted right then because of the war, and then maybe time passed. And I do know that Volta Parma, Washington's, who acted as Washington's agent, died while the book was in production, and then the literary rights went to his wife, Parma's wife. Washington didn't have a good relationship with her. Eventually, it's clear that he felt that he didn't have any kind of literary representation, and he couldn't go back even after the war was over, to Dutton. But what happened right then in 1942, not quite clear. Maybe it had to do with the war. In any event, it was never reprinted. He was 62 years old when the book came out. And for the remainder of his life, he continued to be involved in Lincoln-related circles. At the opening of the Robert Lincoln Papers at the Library of Congress in 1947, he was one of a handful of writers who were honored. And he was the only African-American person to hold a place of honor at that ceremony. Four years later, in 1951, he put large parts of his Lincolniana collection on display at Howard University. He was widely considered by many organizations that he was part of a pillar of his community. So the Association of Black Dentists uh, honored him when he was an older man. He received accolades from his neighborhood association. And in 1961, the Washington Post did a feature on him and his collection of Lincolniana. And these are photos from a spread in what they, their Sunday magazine at that time was called Potomac Magazine. There are glimpses of the um, idea that it was not always easy to be really the only black person in these kind of circles of the Lincoln world um, and the kind of Lincoln fans, Lincoln collector world. In 1955, the Washington Star ran a story about the Lincoln group of Washington, D.C., that John Washington had resigned in protest because the Lincoln group refused to pay enough attention to the role of black soldiers in the Civil War. And according to the story, the leaders of the group went back to Washington and asked him to please come back. Please don't resign. And he sort of said, OK. But that little vignette sort of hints at what it must have been like to be a black man with a commitment to black history in these almost entirely white institutions. He died in 1964, the year Congress passed the Civil Rights Act. Finally helped bring to fruition some of the promises that this country had made to African Americans back in the days of Reconstruction. He was 84 years old. And his wife of more than five decades, Virginia Ross Washington, had passed away just months before. So they had been together for almost 60 years. They didn't have children. And then they died just a few months apart. So They Knew Lincoln was never reprinted after its original issue in 1942. Copies of the original edition typically run for $250 or more because it's a very rare, considered a very rare and valuable book. And the more I learned about it and the more research I did on it, the more I believed it should be back in print. 
I felt that given how much interest there still is in these topics, given the seemingly endless appetite for work on Lincoln, that this book above all should be in print and should be readily available. Um, and that was what helped motivate me to figure out how to navigate the publication process and get it back out there. And I'm really grateful that it is. So we have a tendency, I think, still to segregate our histories, to separate great men from everyday people, men's history from women's history, black from white, and race from nation. John Washington himself rejected that kind of sorting. He took a more encompassing approach. His book illuminated some of the places where Lincoln's history and African-American history converged, and he emphasized the dignity and the significance of the black men and women whose lives overlapped with Lincoln's. He thought black readers and white readers would appreciate his efforts, and he was right. They knew Lincoln brought African-American history into the homes of Lincoln fans and collectors like the ones on Lewis Warren's mailing list. He showed readers that the black people whom Lincoln encountered were real three-dimensional men and women with names and histories of their own. Substantial people, not cardboard cutouts or stereotypes or nameless people that kind of fade into one big mass. The book was born in his effort to vindicate the life story of Elizabeth Keckley, and it challenged white people's tendency to ignore or diminish African-American history the way that Barbie or Bess Furman were doing. It broke new ground by arguing that African-Americans were not simply passive recipients of Lincoln's benevolence, they shaped his attitudes. So the book reminds us that everyday people of the past lived honorable and heroic lives, and their stories, too, are worth remembering. Thanks. Thank you. From where is that picture of African-Americans saying contrabands and Lincoln cried? Where, where is, that? is that? According to Aunt Mary Dines, it's at a contraband camp in Washington, just south of where Howard University is. So this picture is now published in a bunch of places, and some people think that it was taken at Freedman's Village in Arlington. But I don't know where that comes from. And what I know is that this is the first place where the picture was published. It's from Matthew Brady's studio, but it wasn't apparently taken by Matthew Brady himself. And because when it's published in this book, it's associated with essentially provenance information, which is Aunt Mary Dines gave him this photo, and this is how she described it. So I'm not sure how the people who sometimes identify it with Freedman's Village in Arlington, I'm not sure where they get that information. I'm not saying it's wrong, but I'm saying that this seems like there's a lot to contextualize it in that way. So there were a number of contraband camps in Washington, D.C., and this one is ostensibly the one that Lincoln would pass between the White House and the soldiers' home. The African-American Civil War Museum has this photo and a display uh, saying that uh, they believe it was the uh, camp uh, at 12th Street and Florida Avenue. Yes, that's... Uh, so, but they have a, quite a display, a uh, diorama built around this uh, photo and other aspects of the camp. David Rankin Barbie was from Tennessee, a political family that had deep Southern story to tell. And I think he took it upon himself to try to disrupt a number of developing what he considered to be legends around Lincoln. Uh, his papers at uh, Georgetown University have been through, and he uh, very much took on the New York Avenue Presbyterian Church and the relationship mm. with Pastor Gurley. Uh, as uh, being folklore, that in fact Lincoln rarely attended church, uh, uh, he had no faith principles, uh, so he went out of his way to, uh, to denigrate yeah. Lincoln. So it doesn't surprise me that he also would have taken on the, uh, the African-American story as told as well. We're now beginning to appreciate these common man narratives as having a, a story that has to be interpreted. But we've put up with nonsense from uh, American, uh, white uh, Americans, uh, who have published all sorts of memoirs uh, after the, the Civil War. Uh, Lucius Chittenden uh, worked in the Treasury Department, published two huge volumes, which many legitimate scholars still rely on, but they're just about all fiction. Clearly, uh, the few diaries that he kept contradict himself for the stories that he essentially made up. So 
it is refreshing and powerful to uh, have your help in developing the legitimacy for these types of personal narratives and appreciate the contribution that this book uh, makes and thank you for your work. Thank you. Um, and I just want to echo about David Rankin Barbie. I've also looked at the papers that were relevant for my story because he has voluminous papers in the Georgetown Library Special Collections. The reason he was interested in Jane Swisshelm was because she had covered the assassination and he was supposedly writing a book about the assassination uh, and that he never wrote it though. I was sort of like, all right, what did he ever say? Because he was kind of a conspiracy theorist and he didn't like Lincoln and he claimed to have the Southern, meaning white Southern perspective that he wanted to bring. But meanwhile, there's all this correspondence of him slamming Elizabeth Keckley. You know, I mean, she, he's, right, he's going out of his way to write to people and talk about how this is all a fabrication. And then he also makes fun of John Washington. You know, like, so when John Washington comes out and says this is, you know, this story's not true, he writes to some Otto Eisenschimmel in, um, in Chicago and says, oh, this John Washington guy is, you know, oh, he's just, I mean, he says really patronizing things about, you're sort of reading this unvarnished kind of really racist, I mean, the stuff he says in a, two or three letters where he says, Mary Lincoln, as a white woman of her breeding, would never have confided in a servant. It's like, well, you know, there's just so much historical evidence that contradicts that. So sorry, like, I guess your ideas about what constituted proper behavior just weren't followed through in reality. So I'm so fascinated by this part of the story, in part because it was what got John Washington motivated to write the book. But just the notion that somebody could come along and say Elizabeth Keckley never existed and didn't write that book. And he was so confident. And I just feel like there's a whole biography, like, you know, the Jennifer Fleischner book, Mrs. Lincoln and Mrs. Keckley. It's a dual biography of the two women. There is so much evidence that Elizabeth Keckley did all of the things that she said she did. And so it's, you know, I like to think of him just turning over in his grave a little. Okay, yes. Well, in the book, it's a documented, there's footnotes in it. Does he say where he got this material in the book itself? It's very mixed. He wanted to show, wherever he could, he wanted to show evidence, documentary evidence. And so there is an appendix in the book that has facsimiles of a lot of documents. But there's some stuff in the book that just couldn't be backed up, stories that people told, right? Essentially what are essentially oral histories. And so that's the kind of thing where you couldn't have gone back and found a paper trail to it. So he cared about the question of documenting his sources, but at the same time, he realized that for the kind of history he was telling, he wasn't gonna be able to find everything. And also, is there any documentation or reports about them singing, singing to Lincoln? You know, not that I know of. It's interesting because the book on Lincoln and the Lincoln's Cottage by Matthew Pinsker, is it? So he, a little bit, he uses they knew Lincoln. I mean, there is not, I, that I am aware of, another source that says Lincoln went to a contraband camp and sang along. There's no source that said that he didn't. And the thing is, this is part of what's interesting about life in Washington in this period. There's no reason why there would be a source, right? If Lincoln said, hey, I want to stop and visit this place, they pull over and stop and visit doesn't require anyone to write a letter to anyone else. And so there are a lot of things that happen in the kind of day-to-day -day lives of somebody like Lincoln that wouldn't have a paper trail. And those are ex kind of precisely the moments too when you would be having a very mundane interaction with somebody. And so these kind of things go undocumented. So yeah. We had Mr. Zimmerman speak about the conjurer and a lot of the oral history that was going on. Does Washington talk about that in his book too? Mm -hmm. In the parts of the book where he's reminiscing about his grandmother's friends, he talks about ghosts and he talks about superstitions. So he says his grandmother did not believe in ghosts or superstitions and she told her grandchildren that all that was hooey. But at the same time, many of her friends did and they would tell ghost stories and they would talk about superstitions about what to eat on certain occasions or folk remedies, health folk remedies. And as a kid, even though he knew that his grandmother didn't believe in it, he still absorbed a lot of it and really thought about it a lot. So for instance, there were a lot of ghost stories around the assassination because they li lived near Ford's Theater and it was like this incredibly traumatic event. And so older people in the community would talk about seeing lights and hearing screams in the theater or hearing the, the sound of horses' hooves as the ghost of John Wilkes Booth ran, you know, escaped into the night. And he was a little boy, 
And this really <laughs> freaked him out. And at one point, they moved from the Ford's Theater area up north, closer to Florida Avenue. And he says, like, I was so excited. He was still a boy. And he says, I was still excited to move out of that neighborhood because I thought we'd be away from the ghosts. So he finds out that their neighbor, when they move up near Florida Avenue, is an older woman who also believes in ghosts. And he was like, oh, no, I, there was this empty field near our house. And I thought that place was haunted, too. So it's interesting because he, as I mentioned, I mean, he had access to really excellent education. And his grandmother, although we don't know that much about her, she was, like, upwardly mobile kind of respectable. She ran this boarding house. It was a boarding house for white guests and she ran it and then she had this space in the basement where her like black friends, their community would gather. And so she taught him not to believe in ghosts and all that stuff and to get a good education and, and somehow made sure that he got a really good education. And so he, in the book, kind of represents himself as a, as a modern figure who is very interested in the kind of folklore qualities of this older generation. So he's like talking about them in a way that a lot of people of that era did. Um, you know, the works, pro the WPA narratives and things like that, where it's like, let's collect the stories of this older generation that's dying out. But he himself considered himself, you know, not part of that world of superstition and ghosts and things like that. Do you know what happened to the John E. Washington Lincoln collection and library? No, I wish I did. I mean, so he not only would have had a huge amount of correspondence, but also he collected all this stuff. And there's pictures of some of it. Well, there, in the book, there are some pictures of things he had. And then sort of that is a picture of part of his collection. And that, as I said, he didn't have children. And I, for a while, really, really tried to track down what could have happened to his estate. Um, and I also asked around a lot. And nobody could tell me anything. Nobody that I ever reached out to had knew of pieces of the collection or what had happened to the collection. So I really wish I could, yeah, I knew more about that. Yeah. Only slightly relevant question. I'm made curious by the um, relationship with Sandberg. Was there any relationship between them beyond the writing of a brief preface? Did they get to know one another in any way? I don't think they particularly did. They met each other, as I said, in the Library of Congress doing research. And I think Washington had just kind of introduced himself, but Sandberg was hard to track down. So the um, Dotton said, hey, who, guys, who can you guys get? And they didn't think Randall, they didn't want a professor. They didn't think Randall was like famous enough. So they said, who can you guys get? And they said, maybe we can get Carl Sandburg. And John Washington said, well, I've met him. This was all in letters. I'm, so, I'm paraphrasing, obviously. but." Sandberg was hard to track down, and he was kind of a celebrity. And so eventually it was Randall who said to Sandberg, you got to do this. And Sandberg came up with something, again, it's very brief. But I think it was just kind of like, yes, OK, bam. I don't think it was a lasting thing. Yeah. Um, OK, I would love for you to buy the book, because I don't really want to take all those back to Chicago. So please do. I'd be happy to sign them. <laughs> <laughs>